It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The high seas. A dark, blustery night. A pack of bounty hunters stalk their quarry. A pirate sloop nested stealthily off a Jamaican harbor. The bounty hunters, tasked by the governor to find and capture outlaw pirate vessels, wait until most of the pirates are asleep for the night. Then, acting quickly, they storm the deck of the pirate sloop. Their ambush works. The pirates are taken by surprise. Two young men, smooth-chinned and no older than 19 or 20, rush up to meet them. They start taking on the bounty hunters, one by one. Expert swordsmen for any age. Normally, this would be the moment when they'd get some backup. But nobody shows up. They're all drunk, cowering in the hull. But these two rebels put up one hell of a fight. They stand on the deck, back to back, fighting together seamlessly, like they were born to do it. Finally, they're taken. Alive. And their sheepish sloopmates are too. What made these two different? What made them bold enough or reckless enough to take on a gang of bounty hunters, largely outnumbered and likely unprepared? They weren't any older than the other pirates or any more experienced. But there was one thing they did have in common, a shared secret known by only one other person on the whole ship. The two pirates who fought valiantly until the last possible stand that night were both women. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the life of notorious female pirate Anne Bonny. She and her lover, Calico Jack Rackham, tore through the Caribbean together from 1718 to 1720, plundering loot from smaller ships. Today, we'll cover Anne's childhood, her teenage piratical rebellion, and her affair and partnership with Calico Jack. Next week, 
we'll discuss Anne's biggest partner in crime, Mary Reed, and the arrest of Calico Jack's crew. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. Much of what we know about Anne Bonny comes from a sensationalist 1724 book called A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson. But there's still a lot of speculation over who Captain Charles Johnson even was. Some speculate that the name was a pseudonym for Daniel Defoe, writer of Robinson Crusoe, one of the most popular swashbuckling pirate stories of its time. Other historians, like Colin Woodard, in his 2007 book, The Republic of Pirates, claim the author of General History of Pirates was Nathaniel Mist, a journalist and former sailor himself, who worked with Defoe and shared the same publisher. Still other historians have different theories. Needless to say, a text presenting itself as a history book loses a fair amount of credibility when you can't even pin down the real name of its author. But regardless of how credible it is as a source, general history of pirates is still the foundation for most pirate stories we still know and love today. History and folklore have romanticized Anne Bonny's life so much that it's difficult to separate hard fact from mere speculation, especially when different stories contradict one another. What we know starts with Anne's birth in Cork, Ireland, sometime between 1698 and 1702. She was the daughter of William Cormac, a lawyer, and Mary Brennan, who some sources call Peg. Mary Brennan worked for Cormac and his family as one of their maids. When Cormac's wife found out about the affair and the illegitimate child it produced, she wasn't happy about it. Here's where sources start to differ. According to general history of the pirates, Cormac's wife suffered from some sort of illness that left her bedridden, and the two hadn't been living in the same house for years when he took up with Mary Brennan. These sources say Cormac's wife, who came from money, basically paid him alimony to stay married to her, on condition that Cormac cut ties with Mary and Anne once Anne was born. Other sources don't acknowledge this nuance and have Cormac essentially living a double life as the town's rumor mill churned. But regardless of whether it was due to social stigma or a mutually agreed upon arrangement with his wife, Cormac found it impossible to spend time with his daughter in plain sight. But he'd grown fond of Anne and wanted to be part of her life, so he got a little creative. He had Anne live with him disguised as a little boy, a distant relative who had, through some unfortunate circumstance or another, become Cormac's ward. Anne was able to recognize early on that little boys had privileges and opportunities that little girls did not. But she may also have developed some lasting issues from being forced to lie about her parentage. We're about to explore the psychology behind Anne Bonny, so we just wanted to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. 
Eric Erickson, an icon of developmental psychology, developed a theory on stages of psychosocial development that many mental health professionals still reference today. In it, he theorizes that early childhood, between two and four years of age, is a crucial stage of development for a child's self-worth, independence, and autonomy. Erickson believes that at this stage, most kids try to determine if it's okay to be themselves, and the primary relationship that children are exploring and solidifying is their relationship with their parents. So it's not out of the question to guess that being forced to hide her identity, especially her real relationship to her parents during this time, might have had lasting developmental effects on Anne. It's possible that Anne might have been left feeling untethered, since she spent so much of that developmental stage being forced by her parents to pretend she was someone she wasn't. When Cormac's wife found out that the little boy in his care was really his illegitimate daughter Anne, it became clear that Cormac's affair with his maid was not just a one-time indiscretion. Different sources have varying accounts of what happened next. Some say Cormac's wife cut off his allowance. Some say her wrath or the neighborhood gossip drove the family out of town. She was done with Cormac for good. But for whatever reason, William Cormac packed up himself, his young mistress, and their daughter Anne, and set sail for the southern British colonies sometime around 1705. Anne would have been somewhere between three and seven years of age. Cormac and his family landed in the colonial city of Charlestown, South Carolina, which we know today as Charleston. His little family had a rough start at first. Law was Cormac's trade, but for some reason he wasn't able to get steady work in it in Charlestown. Sometime shortly after his arrival in the States, William Cormack changed professions to become a planter and moved the family into a nice home he bought just outside of town. But back then, planters were people who owned plantations. Sometime around 1711 or 1712, when Anne was just 12 or 13 years old herself, her mother Mary passed away. This was no doubt a seismic trauma for Anne that affected her outlook and relationship-building skills for the rest of her life. According to accomplished British psychologist and theorist John Bowlby, the mother-child relationship serves as a template for how that child will form relationships for the rest of their adult life. A crucial stage of the parent-child relationship starts in early childhood and usually concludes when the child is ready to go off and leave home. In this stage, the child routinely tests the boundaries and limitations that their mother has set for them. They ideally come to conclude that these limitations are there for their own best interest and safety, and so they trust the mother once more. This crucial stage of childhood development was sharply interrupted when Anne lost her mother at the dawn of her teenage years. And if we circle back to Eric Erickson's psychosocial stages of development, Anne's mother died towards the end of her industry versus inferiority stage. That's when children navigate their peer systems and start to assess if they can keep up with the pack. Losing her mother at this critical developmental juncture might have affected Anne's ability to trust others and feel secure in social situations in general. Though we have few cold, hard facts about Anne Bonny's adolescence, we do have a collection of stories about a girl with a volatile and violent temper 
Sources cite the death of her mother as the genesis of her explosive anger. Childhood grief over losing a parent is something that has, until fairly recently, been an underexplored psychological response, especially considering that one in nine people have lost a parent before age 20. A recent study done at Johns Hopkins Children's Center in Baltimore found a correlation between children who lost a parent at a young age and children who are hospitalized for depression or who commit violent crimes. That certainly would explain a lot about Anne's later life. Additionally, George Bonanno, a renowned grief researcher and professor at Columbia University, describes the grieving process as an oscillation between extremes of functioning and non-functioning, between positive and negative emotions. According to Bonanno, the dominant negative emotion people usually feel when they're grieving is sadness. But it's highly possible that Anne's dominant negative emotion was anger. Anne's first reported violent incident was when she allegedly stabbed a British house servant with a butter knife around age 14 or 15. That story is probably mostly folklore, but still is an interesting piece in the puzzle of how Anne Bonny of Charlestown became one of the most feared pirates of the high seas. After the death of her mother, to say that Anne acted out would be an understatement. And like most teenagers going through a rebellious phase, she took up with a somewhat questionable group of friends, pirates. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now the story continues. Around 1714, 15-year-old Anne Bonny began hanging around seaside pubs known for attracting an outlaw crowd. She befriended many of the pirates who frequented the establishment and reportedly even engaged in flings with a couple of them. Even with societal expectations of women as rigid as they were back in the early 18th century, hormones were still hormones. So the fact that Anne was experimenting with her sexuality wasn't necessarily peculiar. But the fact that she was focusing her attentions almost exclusively on pirates was. Dr. Catherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University, defines hybristophilia as a type of paraphilia in which a person gets sexually aroused by someone else committing an offensive or violent act. Hybristophilia is a fetish that has never been successfully explained or deconstructed. Nobody even knows how common it is, let alone what causes it or whether there is a genetic component. Psychologists have many different theories as to why it happens. Dr. Ramsland theorizes that hybristophiliacs may enjoy feeling special, like they're the only person in the world who their violent lover would treat kindly. She also posited that proximity to fame, or infamy, is part of the thrill. But whatever Anne's motivations, she spent so much of her teen years drinking with sailors in Charlestown, not to mention seducing them, that it started to drive a rift between her and her father, William Cormack. Her reputation for promiscuity began to hurt his business. In the early 18th century, women's behavior reflected back on the man of their household, and William Cormack was afraid Anne's wild reputation could do him significant professional damage. Anne was in her mid-teens at this point, and in Charlestown at that time, 
That meant her father needed to start thinking about her wedding. Like many fathers, he wanted to marry her off to a boy from a good family with whom he could have a symbiotic business relationship. But Anne's notorious exploits with Charlestown's sailor population made it hard for Anne to attract respectable suitors. And since respectable suitors likely meant the sons of other plantation owners in Charlestown, maybe Anne was happy with this development. Maybe being born to a working-class mother kept her from ever feeling like she really belonged in Charlestown society. Anne Bonny's most notorious early act of violence came during her courtship period, when she viciously attacked a potential suitor who tried to rape her. According to general history of the pirates, among other sources, she beat the young man half to death. While Johnson offers this anecdote up in General History of Pirates as an example of Anne's violent aggression, it seems like an appropriate response to attempted rape, even if it was largely out of character for how women were expected to act at that time. Women in this time period, especially women of Anne's social standing, were expected to fall in line, follow orders, and not expect much autonomy over their own lives. They went from marrying who their fathers chose to obeying their husbands. But despite William Cormack's best efforts to set Anne up with a nice young man with a stable future, Anne married James Bonney, a wannabe sailor and general scoundrel in 1718, when she was around 16 years old. Her father disapproved of the marriage, as he likely felt that James Bonney was little more than an opportunist who was after Anne just to get to Cormac's money. This probably only sweetened the deal for Anne, who finally got the opportunity to give Charlestown society the proverbial middle finger. Anne's mind was made up, so she married her sailor and they set off on a high seas adventure. After their wedding in 1718, they landed in New Paradise in the Bahamas. New Paradise had just begun its final act as one of the most iconic pirate hideouts in the British Atlantic. Just a year prior, Governor Woods Rogers had officially been appointed the first ever governor of the Bahamas. A sailor and privateer of humble origin, Woods Rogers inherited a fortune from his father-in-law and eventually blew it all on a business venture with a charismatic yet shady friend. He tried his hand at privateering, but he didn't make enough to recoup the huge losses he had sunk into the venture. A privateer was essentially a pirate for hire. Privateers were independent merchants, usually hired by foreign governments authorized to commit acts of war against any vessel that was a threat to their employer. The difference was that privateering was legal and even encouraged, while piracy was not. During the golden age of piracy, privateers were usually employed as pirate hunters. When Woods Rogers didn't capture enough pirates for bounty, his crew sued him for back pay, and he was forced to sell one of his houses to keep his family afloat. He eventually went bankrupt and his wife left him. In 1713, Woods Rogers devised a plan to essentially colonize Madagascar under the guise of securing the trading routes through the Indian Ocean. Using an elaborate plan to buy slaves in Madagascar as a ruse, Woods Rogers collected intel on all the pirates in the area and, once he learned they were tired of life at sea, 
persuaded many of them to accept a pardon. Once the seas around Madagascar were safe from pirates, the island was ripe for the picking for the British East India Company. By 1718, word had gotten around about Woods Rogers' pirate taming activities in Madagascar, and the British Crown sent him down to the Bahamas to see if he could work the same magic down there. Woods Rogers arrived in New Paradise the very same year that James and Anne Bonny did, with strict orders from the Crown to end piracy in the British Atlantic. The only problem was, these pirates weren't as sick of sea life as the ones in Madagascar. New Paradise, like much of the Bahamas and modern-day Jamaica, was totally corrupted by pirates. With no formal government for years and ample opportunity to sell their loot, the British West Indies were an outlaw's paradise. Local government officials had all been bought off by the pirates and most of the local merchants helped harbor the seafaring scoundrels in exchange for coin as well. So when Governor Rogers, a former seaman and privateer himself, arrived on scene, his strategy was first to offer the king's pardon to all pirates who ceased their activities. For some pirates, Governor Rogers' offer of pardon was enough of a hint to be on their merry way. They hoisted their anchors and set off in search of a more lucrative bounty. Most wound up sailing east to Africa, where they ambushed vulnerable slave ships. Other diehards ignored the king's pardon and continued piracy in the British Atlantic, a direct insult to Woods Rogers and the crown he represented. Governor Woods then set forth severe punishments to make an example of these outliers. They would be hunted down and prosecuted for their crimes, which were now punishable by death. Of course, Anne Bonny had already befriended a handful of these outlaws by this point, even though they hadn't even been in New Paradise for a whole year yet. She grew increasingly disinterested in her husband, James, particularly since he wasn't able to make much of a living for the two of them. Instead, she set her sights on these much more dangerous men. Among them was Captain Calico Jack Rackham. Calico Jack got his nickname for his affinity for colorful garments, and some say his colorful temper. He and his crew, a small but mighty gang of about 12 men, often docked in the Bahamas. Anne took no time at all to fall in love with Calico Jack, perhaps because he embodied everything she thought she was marrying in James Bonney. A rebellious and somewhat reckless maritime man who promised to show Anne adventures beyond her wildest dreams and regarded her as a partner, not property. Also, if Anne was indeed a hybristophiliac, with her sights set on Calico Jack, not even the roughest seas were gonna keep her from him. Meanwhile, Anne's marriage to James Bonney was turning sour, in part because it turns out James Bonney wasn't much of a sailor. He struggled to find consistent maritime work after moving to New Paradise with Anne. Soon, Anne and Calico Jack's friendship turned into something more, and they began carrying on an affair right under James's nose. The only gossip that travels faster than small-town gossip is island gossip, so James certainly heard whispers of his wife's indiscretions. Perhaps that explains James's next actions. After Governor Woods Rogers set up shop, James came upon the opportunity to work as an informant for the governor 
and he took it. We don't know which came first, the affair or the informant job, but either way, news of the other's indiscretions must have stoked the flames of anger and mistrust between James and Anne. Eventually, Anne and Calico Jack's affair became all-consuming, and they began to explore the possibilities of eloping together themselves. Back then, in the early 18th century, divorce certainly wasn't commonplace, but it happened on occasion. Rather than file legal documents to signify a divorce or annulment, what would often happen is the wife, or her current suitor, would offer the husband a sum of money that roughly equaled whatever dowry or fortune he amassed by marrying his wife in the first place. Essentially, a wife would buy herself back from her husband with the help of the man with whom she was currently involved. Calico Jack went to James Bonney and offered him such a sum of money in exchange for divorcing Anne. But, unexpectedly, James Bonney refused. And since Anne Bonney hadn't exactly grown into the kind of woman who'd ever take no for an answer, that meant she and Calico Jack had to figure out another way to be together. The stakes shot up immediately when Anne and Calico Jack learned that not only had James Bonney refused to let Calico Jack buy Anne off of him, he'd also told his colleague, Governor Woods Rogers, about his predicament. Woods Rogers put a bounty on Calico Jack and ordered Anne to return home at once for a flogging. This perhaps was the last straw for Anne. In a time when society was rigidly gender-segregated, Piracy offered Anne a rare escape from oppression. In the late 17th and early 18th centuries, women of Anne's social standing were taught to be loyal daughters, then loving wives, then devoted mothers. Suffrage was hardly a thought in the ether at that point. Women largely existed to serve the men who lorded over them. Marriage was primarily a property-preserving system. In the rigid confines of the capitalism of these new colonies, Anne was merely a commodity. Perhaps she had originally thought that by marrying James Bonney, she was escaping the mainland culture in which wives and daughters were treated as property. Governor Woods Rogers' order was a harsh reminder that this was very much not the case. So Anne clung to the idea of life under the Jolly Roger with Calico Jack. There, at least, she'd be free to make her own choices and have a shot at being treated as an equal, if she proved herself, that is. And remember, if Anne had hybristophilia, then she may have looked forward to being the only woman allowed in the life of this ruthless, violent man. A whole ship full of ruthless, violent men. In New Paradise, just like Charlestown, the man of the house controlled everyone else in it. And Anne did not leave her home and her father to sign up for that kind of life. So Calico Jack and Anne did what true outlaws and pirates did best. They set sail. Late one night, sometime in late 1718 or 1719, when Anne was still only 16 or 17 years old, she donned men's clothing, just like when she was a little girl back in Ireland, and escaped New Paradise with Calico Jack and his crew of about 17 or 18 men. They stole a ship, a pirate sloop called the William, on their way out of the harbor. And because Woods Rogers and his men were looking for a woman, they never even thought to look twice 
at a mangy, all-male pirate crew fleeing in the night. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now back to our story. Around 1718, teenaged Anne Bonny began her pirate career aboard the William, a sloop stolen by her lover, Calico Jack Rackham. The actual day-to-day life of a pirate was far different from the folklore we know today. There was far less rum and far more distilled rainwater being swigged mid-afternoon on the ship. And the majority of pirates were very normal people. Many even had wives and families back on dry land somewhere that they had to support through their work. Anne Bonny and Calico Jack reigned during what's known as the Golden Age of Piracy, a time period ranging from about 1630 to 1750, when pirates were plentiful on the high seas of the British Atlantic. It was one of the most profitable ways to make a living off a hard day's work. Each wave of the Golden Age of Piracy shares the same inciting incident, a war. After the War of the Spanish Succession ended in 1714, the seas were flooded with European paramilitary sailors and privateers looking for work. There were more sailors than available spots on ships, so merchants and ship captains could afford to be frugal. For a skilled seaman after the War of the Spanish Succession, there were four viable options. First, you could go into business for yourself as an independent sailor or privateer, but competition was stiff and permanent jobs were few and far between. Second, you could work as an informant, like James Bonney did. But many rough and tumble sailors would rather go hungry than snitch on their friends and co-workers. Third, you could get a job on a transatlantic slave ship, but pay wasn't great. Which is why, during this time period, many men chose option number four, piracy. Between the slave trade and importing and exporting of goods, there was still a lot of traffic going into and out of the British Atlantic in the early 18th century. And if a pirate crew was crafty enough, they could make a decent living by stealing from merchants' ships. For many men just coming home from war and eager to spend time with their families, piracy seemed like a straightforward way to make enough to support a family on a somewhat flexible schedule for a sailor. No more month-long spells away at war. Pirates had to dock to repair their ships, mend their wounded, and sell their loot more often than you would think. And especially since Port Nassau remained one of the only ports in the British Atlantic that allowed pirates to sell their loot on shore, making the whole town essentially a pirate haven, living a pirate's life in the British Atlantic was a fairly lucrative way to make a living. Besides a steady paycheck, piracy dangled one more tantalizing promise that most other professions of that era did not the possibility of social mobility. In recent years, historians like Joel A. Rogers and Matthew Restall have started filling in the gaps history has left about the presence of black pirates during the Golden Age. In his book, Black Jacks, W. Jeffrey Bolster theorizes that part of the reason some African slaves converted willingly to piracy was because it offered a welcome escape from the oppressive cycle of the slave trade. Pirates like Thomas J. Wansley, 
Diego El Mulatto Martin and Diego Grillo were able to get on sloops that allowed them to rise up the ranks, an opportunity they'd never have on dry land. African slaves and their descendants may have been accepted as peers on pirate sloops and deep-sea vessels, but the luxury of that status was still far, far out of reach for women. Anne Bonny, even setting foot on a pirate sloop was a revolutionary act. In the early 18th century, women were strictly forbidden aboard deep-sea vessels. The reasons for this, historians believe, are mixed. In Iron Men, Wooden Women, Gender and Seafaring in the Atlantic World, historian Marcus Redeker theorizes that one reason for such strict gender segregation on the high seas had to do with the assumption that women couldn't handle the hard physical labor of maritime life. Piracy, like any other kind of sailing, was not a job for the fragile or faint of heart. So one of the reasons Anne Bonny could have dressed as a man the night she and Calico Jack ran away in late 1718 could be because she did not want any of her crewmates to see her as weak. There's also numerous correspondences from naval admirals in that time period writing to their men, or sometimes their superiors, about their fears that women on a ship would be a distraction. Back then, male sexuality was still regarded as something primal and uncontrollable, and people worried about anything that would prevent sailors from giving the high seas their full attention. For pirates, the segregation was likely based more on unfounded beliefs. While it's highly probable that pirate sloops didn't welcome female pirates because they didn't think they could handle the physical labor and inevitable fights, it's also reported that pirates were extremely superstitious and simply regarded having a woman on board as bad luck. This is a bit speculative, given that there were ample women on the high seas during this time. They were working below deck as cooks, scullery maids, laundresses, and sex workers. Sometimes there were even wives who sailed the high seas with their husbands. Recent research suggests that women even served very infrequently as sailors, either aboard independent merchant ships or in the British Navy. But regardless, a woman living on a ship as an equal to the men aboard was rare. Which is why, starting that night around 1718, when she ran away from her home for a second time, Anne Bonny set off on a course of events that would not only change her life, but would also change history. Calico Jack had a storied reputation as one of the best pirates of his day, but interestingly enough, his most consistently lucrative period happened from 1718 to 1720, when he had Anne aboard the William with him. Over the next year, Calico Jack and his crew consistently raided merchant ships that sailed into and out of the British Atlantic. According to most sources, Anne Bonny lived as a woman on the ship during this time, but would don men's clothing when they were about to engage in combat. Perhaps this too was related to hybristophilia. Even in women's garments, Anne's relationship with Calico Jack may have endowed her with a sense of importance that helped her carry her head high on deck. Whatever her reasons, towards the end of her time at sea, Anne stopped disguising herself as a man except in combat. Given the assumption at the time that women were the weaker, more fragile sex, 
and may have dressed as a man in these situations to help intimidate the Williams' opponents. And in case that didn't work, Anne's behavior was apparently intimidating enough. She was known for her ruthless and daring spirit, rushing boldly into combat, sometimes ahead of her sloopmates. She also had a flair for the macabre. One story from Anne's early pirate days tells of how she created a fake body using the sloop's netting and parts from an old dressmaker's mannequin. She'd dress the contraption up in fake blood and wave it high over her head as they approached a ship they were raiding. This scared the other ship's crew and bought Calico Jack and his crew a valuable moment of distraction, which helped their ambush go successfully. Interestingly enough, this stunt also reflects a somewhat detached relationship with death that some child psychologists say is not uncommon in people who lose a parent when they're young. It's possible that Anne used her childhood trauma to make herself a better pirate. Anne's fun came to an abrupt end sometime in 1719, when she discovered she was pregnant. A pirate ship may have felt more like home to Anne Bonny than anywhere else she'd lived, but she knew it was no place for an infant. The image of pirates dripping in gold and doubloons while they swigged rum on deck and made their captives walk the plank is a highly doctored and dramatized one. Pirates lived off of what they could bring with them and what they could steal. Sometimes food was scarce. Something like rum, which could fetch a high price on dry land in New Paradise, was a luxury, not a regular occurrence. And most modern historians believe that walking the plank never even happened. That's something entirely generated by men who wrote pirate stories, not pirates themselves. Still, hours were long and hard work was abundant. Between guarding loot and captives, making sure the ship stayed its course, and keeping one eye out for Governor Woods Rogers and his men, everyone had more than their fair share of work to do. So even if Anne managed to carry her pregnancy to term successfully in this environment, they definitely didn't have anyone on board who could take on childcare. And Anne was always among the first to rush waiting ships. How quickly could she jump onto another ship's deck right into some swordplay if she was pregnant? Shortly after learning that Anne was pregnant, Calico Jack dropped her off somewhere in Cuba sometime in 1719 so that she could safely give birth to her child. Little is known about this time in Anne's life. History follows Calico Jack more closely, perhaps because those writing and reading it at the time identified more with an Anglo-American swashbuckling pirate captain than with a pregnant woman. We're not even sure if Anne successfully gave birth to her baby, or if she did, what happened to it afterwards. We do know that this was the first time in Anne's recorded history that she had to choose between two roles, that of a mother and that of a pirate, and history tells us which she picked. Anne rejoined Calico Jack and his crew less than a year after docking in Cuba, sometime in early 1720, when she was only 19 or 20 years old herself, with no baby in sight. Anne's sabbatical and subsequent childbirth in Cuba is an unverified blip in the history books. But regardless of what exactly happened, it was undoubtedly a meaningful event in her life. 
Gynecology and psychology back in the early 18th century was primitive, but the notion of depression that sets in after childbirth was an old one. Postpartum depression has been observed in new mothers since at least the time of ancient Greece. Friedrich Benjamin Osiander, a German obstetrician and pioneer in obstetrics in the 18th and 19th centuries, described a detailed version of postpartum psychosis using the term pure pearl mania and drew connections between childbirth and mental illness. The very act of giving birth alone could have been very psychologically traumatic for Anne. Especially as someone who lost her own mother as a child, making that bond a triggering one already. But losing a baby is something else entirely. Western society had always upheld motherhood as the ideal role for a woman, the ultimate divine purpose she was destined to fulfill. This influenced how men viewed women and how women viewed themselves. If it's true that Anne's baby died, it's probable that this profoundly affected her sense of self. Unfortunately, we can only speculate. But it is safe to say that Anne's time in Cuba forced her to tap into a different kind of strength, one that Calico Jack and her sloopmates would never be able to match. I can't help but wonder how Anne's time in Cuba affected their relationship. He left her there, essentially abandoning her. Though paternity tests weren't invented yet back in 1719, when Calico Jack dropped Anne off in Cuba to await her child's birth, it was pretty safe to assume that the baby was Calico Jack's. Though he may have done it for her safety, or for the baby's safety, it's hard to imagine that Anne would have happily welcomed back the man who had left her to deal with all of this alone. For someone like Anne, who lost her mother at an age where it could make trusting people and building close relationships especially difficult, how did Calico Jack's actions affect her? Did it perhaps trigger abandonment issues, long repressed, that plagued her when her mother died? If Anne's baby died, it may have been hard for her to even lay eyes on Calico Jack. A recent study conducted by the UK's National Health Service showed that people who experience pregnancy loss have an elevated risk of developing post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. A lot of the media focus on PTSD is on soldiers returning from war. But anyone who has been through a traumatic experience can develop PTSD. People with PTSD can experience, among other symptoms, strong aversion or repulsion to anyone or anything that reminds them of their trauma. For women who miscarry, that can mean pregnant friends, diaper ads, images of the stork. For Anne, that could have included Calico Jack. And if Anne didn't lose her baby and abandoned it instead, she would have likely been plagued with feelings of guilt, inadequacy, and shame which would likely be triggered every time she laid eyes on the baby's father. Whatever happened, it's hard to imagine that this wouldn't affect their bond, even if it was Anne herself who insisted Calico Jack sail on. But if Anne's time in Cuba didn't change her relationship with Calico Jack, their final leg at sea together was certainly about to. Because when Anne reboarded the William, she would meet another pirate who would change her life forever. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. 
Next week, we'll meet the pirate who became Anne's partner in crime. We'll see the downfall of the pirates aboard the William, and we'll learn how Anne avoided the same fate as the rest of her crew. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Wednesday as we continue delving into the high seas exploits of Anne Bonny. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Female Criminals is written by Lorelai Ignis and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson. 